Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. I'm going to uh, I'm going to jump through what I would consider to be my introduction. Um, I want you to uh, I do want to I want to pose two questions though before we uh, dive into God's Word. The two questions are this. If, if you were Satan, what would be your strategy? What would be your primary plan of attacking the people of God? What would that be? The second question, and I, I hope you'll ponder these throughout our time together, but also throughout the coming week. The second question is, how can our failures, how can our failures be used by God? How can our failures prepare us for greater things? How is that possible? How can that happen? I want to start, not with our primary text this morning, but I want to take you to a verse from Colossians. Paul writes this incredible letter to the church at Colossae. And he opens it in, in the first chapter, in verse 13, he says these words. He says, God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Paul says that God has switched our citizenship. That God, that we were once in the kingdom of darkness. We were once under the rule and reign of Satan. And when we came to Christ, when we trusted Christ, he moved our citizenship. And if you're, if you're a Christ follower, if you've trusted in the name of Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and to overcome the power of sin in your life, then your citizenship's been moved. That's what the Bible says. So why do I still struggle with my sin? Why do, why do we still struggle? You know, in the last 30, 45, 50 days, I have grieved, I don't know how else to say it, over the fall of some men who... I have looked up to for years. Men who have been Christian mentors in my life from afar in many ways. They had by all accounts in earthly criteria successful ministries, uh, tremendous national and even international influence for the kingdom of God. They've mentored, I can't countless Christian leaders and pastors all over the globe. One has recently confessed to an affair and the other it looks like is caught up in some things that have led to the demise of his ministry anyway. And the ministries that they once led are kind of in chaos. The men and women that are left kind of in the ashes are struggling. Now I, I don't bring these examples to you today just because we needed a list. We could, we could go to this book. Man, if we needed a list of incredible failures, all we had to do was go here. You know? The man that God looked at and decided after he saw the corruption into the earth, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over with Noah. Man, right after Noah gets off the boat, he gets naked drunk. Brings shame on his whole family and division. Unbelievable. And then God says, you know what? I'm going to create a covenant people, a nation that can be my nation that will be a light to the world. And he says, I'm going to start this covenant with a guy named Abraham. Abraham lives in so much fear that he denies that he's even married to a woman because he's afraid somebody else is going to want her. You know? Moses. This man that God said, I'm going to use this guy to deliver my people from captivity. He was a murderer. Another man that God said, I'm going to use this man to bring my people back to me. I've given him a heart of worship. I'm going to make him king over my people. He becomes an adulterer 
and a murderer plotting the death of this woman's husband. And that's the short list. You know, that's, that's just the short list of people whose failures publicly are put on display. And again, these are, these are the heroes of my faith. Of your faith if you're, you know, a Christ follower. If you follow this book. Why does God allow such things to come into the lives of his people? Now, one answer may simply be, this is probably a simple answer, probably a dumb answer too. But it may simply be to keep the rest of us from doing the same stupid things. Maybe that's why he allows it. How many of you have ever had a friend, maybe a family member, somebody that you care about, fall into horrible sin? You knew their heart. You knew they weren't seeking it. it they just kind of, it, it was like they fell in a hole. And after watching that, you said to yourself, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that could be me. I've said it hundreds of times. If you haven't said it, you may need to think about it. If it wasn't for the grace of God. You know, in John Newton's great hymn, some of you are familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace. One of the verses tells us that in this life there are many dangers, many toils, many, many snares. And if it wasn't for the amazing grace of God, we would all be in certain ruin. If it wasn't just for God's amazing grace. Now that thought brings me to the scripture that I really want us to focus our thinking on today together. And it's at the very end of that Lord's Prayer that we prayed a moment ago. It's really the kind of the last phrase of the request that Jesus told us to make of the Father. And it's simply this. Deliver us from evil. Some, some translations add the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, I don't think it makes a great deal of difference which one, whether you use the general version or the specific version. There's not really a whole lot of difference between the two. I particularly like the translation evil one because of some of the, the Greek language that's used there, kind of the context. You know, as, as we saw last week, Jesus had a personal encounter of dealing with Satan's temptations and scheme himself. And I believe given that, that Jesus would have instructed his disciples to pray for deliverance from the arch enemy, from, from Satan himself. And I believe that's a good way to understand this petition, is to, to think of it this way. Lead us not temptation. That word deliver is, is, a, is a really active word. It literally means to be snatched out of the grip, to be yanked out, to, to save us. And so when, when we're praying that, when Jesus says, you need to pray to, not to be led into temptation, but to be snatched out of the hand of the evil one. You need to be delivered that way. Now, if you were one of those folks who will write in your Bibles, I know some people think, oh no, you know, holy word of God. It's okay to write in your Bible, okay? Um, the, uh, it's a good thing, I think. If you are one who does, you're prone to do that. Next to Matthew 6, 13, I would encourage you to write 1 Peter 5, 8. I looked at several of my Bibles and none of them cross-reference 1 Peter 5.8 here. But here's why I think you ought to write that there to reference it. Peter says here, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil, the evil one. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour, to destroy, to annihilate. See, in light of, of that, I think Jesus' instruction becomes easier to understand. When we pray, don't let Satan loose on me, God. God, please don't let Satan rescue me from this destructive one. This one who seeks to destroy. Now, it's interesting to me when you put the first half of verse 13 together with the last half, two things happen. The first is this. When you say to God, God, when it comes to this temptation thing, keep me from it. What you're saying to God is, God, I am weak. 
I recognize my weakness. I know I am weak. I know I struggle. God, I, I, I know I'm going to be tempted. But then when you pray the last half of that verse and you say, deliver me from the evil one, what you're declaring is the power of God, the might of God. You're saying, God, I know I am so weak. Please don't let me be tempted. But God, deliver me from the power. So there's this declaration. And I want to encourage you. You know, I know a lot of you pray silently. There are times when you need to make your prayers verbal. You need to say them out loud. And I want to encourage you, one of the great passages to pray is this passage that Jesus taught us his disciples to pray. And when you pray that part where it says, deliver me from the evil one, you ought to pray that out loud. Because you are making a, de a declaration of your faith. You are saying, Jesus, I am putting my trust in you. I know I can't do this on my own. I can only make it because of your power. Deliver me. You need to make that declaration out loud. See, Satan can't read your mind. But he needs to know what you're declaring to do. Who you're trusting in. Not in yourself. You don't want to get into temptation. But God, deliver me. So when you pray... Pray that out loud. Even if you're alone by yourself in your room, declare it out loud. Now somebody might look at that prayer and say, that kind of sounds kind of cowardly. You know? You know, aren't, aren't, aren't we supposed to be strong in the Lord? Well, let me ask you this question. I'll answer your question with a question. Was Jesus a coward? <laughs> no. No, Jesus was no coward. He was no coward. In Matthew chapter 26, the Bible tells us that on the night before he would be crucified, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he begged God to take this cup away. If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, the Bible tells us when he was praying that prayer that he did it with loud cries and tears. Loud cries and tears. Here, here's the Son of God in the moment of his greatest testing, greatest trial, he doesn't boast in his power. He's not, he's not saying, well, God, tell that snake, bring it on. I got one for him right here, bring it. That is not how Jesus prayed in the garden. He is praying a prayer of deliverance. Now, here's something that I've come to believe deeply. I've come to believe that the victory of Calvary didn't wait till Friday. I believe the victory of Calvary happened in the garden that night when Jesus prayed. When Jesus went to the Father and he prayed and he said, God, deliver me, I believe the battle was over. When he said, God, I'm trusting, I am putting my trust in you. If there's a way to, to change this, do it, but I am trusting you, God. So that when Judas came to bring the kiss, and, you know, deliver him to the, the guards that day, victory had already been won. When, when the, the, the spikes were being driven into his hands, and the victory had already been won. He had already won the victory because he went to his father and asked his father to deliver him. See, here's the deal. Jesus did not fail his great testing because Jesus did not fail to pray. He did not fail to pray in this matter. And if anybody had the right to go into a spiritual battle thinking, I got it going on, it was Jesus. But he didn't. Folks, one of the reasons that we fail so miserably when we're tested is because we fail to pray for God's deliverance. We, we fail to do that. And Jesus, if he needed to pray for it, how much more do we need it? Jesus didn't fail in his testing because he didn't fail to pray. Look at Luke 22 with me. It says that he came out and he went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus went off and prayed. And then he comes back and what does he find them doing? They're snoozing. They're sleeping. In verse 46 he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, Jesus understood 
the power of the enemy. Jesus understood the destruction that he could bring. And see, Jesus, I think sometimes when we read the words of Jesus, we think, oh, he's, he's teaching us things. We, we need to hear. Jesus did not teach outside of the life he lived. Jesus lived everything he taught. When he taught his disciples to pray, deliver us from the evil one, it was because Jesus would do it. He, his life would be about asking the Father to deliver him from the evil one. And in the moment of his greatest struggle, that's what he did. That's exactly what Jesus did. Now, before you and I go off to face this world, the mess of this world and the attacks of the evil one, this needs to be a prayer that we, we live in. If you want to avoid temptation and the snares, you and I need to be begging for God's help. I've heard it said that those who do, for them the battle's half won. Battle's already half won if you are begging God regularly to deliver you from the evil one. See, when you pray this prayer, you're admitting your, your weakness, but you're, re, you're also admitting your dependence on God. Again, you know, oftentimes people think, well, you know, we're supposed to be strong in the Lord. That's what Jesus is teaching you how to be. He is showing you to pray this prayer as a way to be strong in the Lord. You know, if, uh, if there was a battle and I was in it and I had, you know, a, a, a friend that I was with, I would not want that friend to be overconfident in the battle. I would want that friend to be just a little bit afraid. Because those people who are overconfident, soldiers who are overconfident, are headed for trouble. Now, I'm not saying being coward and, and fearful and those kinds of things, but I want to be with somebody who respects the enemy. I want to be beside that person who respects the enemy, who understands how intense the Bible's going, the, the, the battle's going to be. I, I want to be around that person. And we're supposed to pray that way. We're supposed to pray this way. You know, we're not supposed to pray. This would be a stupid prayer. I'm using that word a lot today, aren't I? I'm going to quit that. Okay. The, the, this would not be the most intelligent prayer. Is that better? Um, to pray, hey God, I'm, I've been fortified. I'm prayed up, you know. I've been soaping every day. I know the devil wants after me. Just bring it. I got something for that snake. Friends, never go there. Don't, just don't go there. You will be crushed. There is no way that in your own strength you can stand against this adversary. See, this is why this little five-word petition is so deep and so profound. And I want to suggest, kind of, I think it's a great prescription for your whole spiritual life. In fact, I think it's a great assessment tool. If you are not praying regularly, dear God, deliver me from the evil one, that may explain why you're often licking your wounds. Why you're often being beaten by the enemy in your life. is because you're not praying this great prayer. Jesus said when you pray, lead us not to temptation. Confess your weakness, but then cling to the power of God. Because he is a God who delivers. Now, sometimes he delivers you by taking you through the temptation. Sometimes he walks with you through it. And without the Lord's help, you would just be ultimately, ultimately crushed. Because unless Jesus helps us, we're going to succumb every single time. See, this, this, this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray is one of the primary ways we learn to abide in Christ. Knowing that we need deliverance from him. We, we've got to have it from him. At the Last Supper, Jesus was with his disciples. And in that setting, he predicted, he told Peter that... He was going to fail miserably. Public humiliation was going to come, but he would not be utterly destroyed. He would be tempted, and he would fall, but he would eventually be restored. You remember that? In, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus looks at Peter. They're at the table, and Jesus says, Simon. Simon was his other name. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you. And I want you to know that that word there, you, is plural. It's not singular. That he might sift you like wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Hope you noticed that twice, I mean he uses Peter's name twice. Hey Peter! Peter! Did I have your attention? Peter, you need to know this. That you are going to fail miserably. You are going to deny me. You're going to be tempted. Satan wants something out of you. See, anytime Satan comes, and here that some translations say that Satan asked. The language there really is, he came to God and, and kind of asked in a demanding tone. I want them. I want that one. He, that's how he comes to God. And, and Jesus said, he's not going to be able to destroy you. See, when, when we face temptation, there are two outcomes, always. One time, it, 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 you may end up feeling destroyed. But the other part of this, God always wants to deliver. Satan wants to destroy, but God wants to deliver. Now, in, in Peter's case, there was this kind of temporary victory for the enemy, it looked like. It looked like he was going to win. But God got the greater victory in the end. And that's oftentimes how God works. Sometimes our most bitter defeats are the ashes out of which God builds some great spiritual victories. Some incredible things. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Now again, I told you a moment ago that word that you that's used there is plural. It's like Jesus is in this room with these, these men and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, Peter, I need your attention. Satan has demanded to sift y'all. That's southern Hebrew for those of you that don't know. He has is, he is demanded to sift y'all. He's talking to Peter, but now he says, quite frankly, Satan's after all of you guys. But here's how he's going to get at you. He's going to directly attack Peter. You know Satan does that often? He directly goes after leaders. He, he does that. He just, he'll directly go after leaders. Now, one of the great fallacies, I think, in, in the way we approach our, our understanding of Satan is sometimes Christians mistakenly think he's like a little God. Think, somehow begin to think that, you know, God's got like 100% power and Satan's got like 90%. Folks, that's a lie. Satan is a created being. Now, he's powerful, but his power is in deception. He doesn't have actual power. He has a power to deceive. He has no authority over you except what you surrender to him. He's not as powerful as God. He's a created being. I love what Martin Luther said about the devil. He says the devil is God's devil. God, God owns him. God, I know it doesn't feel like it, but God's got the Satan on a short leash. Some of you are saying, man, the leash in my neighborhood's long. Okay? It's not. Satan is on, is on a short leash. He, he's got him. God is not, you know, semi-equal in power. And we need to understand this. And that's one of the reasons that Satan starts coming after leaders like he does. That's one of the reasons he attacks fathers in homes. Dad, the family shepherds that are in here. Satan wants to sift your family. And most often he wants to do it through you. He wants to take you down. Wives, it's one of the reasons you need to pray for your husbands. Pray that they would not be delivered by the, they would be delivered from the evil one. Men, we need to be praying that for ourselves because the way that Satan often sifts our families is he's a, it's an attack on us. He does that in the lives of churches for leaders, pastors. He does it in nations over and over again. Satan will go after leaders so that he can sift everyone else under that leadership's influence. We're seeing that played out in our society today, in our very own culture. Satan, oftentimes, you know, most of us think we're aware of our weaknesses. You know, we know what our weaknesses are. And we normally think, that's the button Satan pushes in my life. Well, sometimes, Satan comes at your strength. In Mark chapter 14, verse 29, after Jesus had told Peter what was going to happen, this is what Peter's response to Jesus was. Even though they all, who's he talking about? Those other boys, he said, Jesus, even though they all fall away, not me. Jesus, I got this. If you had asked Peter six hours before, 
before he denied Jesus three times, if, if six hours you had gone to Peter and said, uh, yes, Simon Peter, what do you consider to be your greatest strengths? I could see Peter saying, dude, I'm, I got courage. I am so bold. I will say anything. And Jesus, Jesus knows I got his back. I, I, I'm, I'm loyal. I think that's what, I think G, Peter would have said, those are my, those are my greatest strengths. But the moment when Satan attacked and attacked swiftly and suddenly and unexpectedly, Peter turned to what? This bold apostle became like melted butter. You know, he, he, he was, Peter was helpless to ward off the attack of Satan. And in this moment of crisis, Peter failed in every way you could imagine. And that really shouldn't surprise us. You know, I think most of us are surprised when Satan comes at our strengths. But here's the reason why is because we don't normally protect ourselves there. We, we start thinking, you know, we got this. Folks, when you start looking at somebody else's life who has fallen and you think, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I got that one under control. You were ready for a smackdown. I mean, you, you have, there's a red flag. If you ever find that thought passing through the two brain cells you got left, you know, if you ever have that thought, you need to, you need to raise some flags, man. You need to call some, some friends. You need a lifeline. Because when that thought passes through your mind, like it did Peter's, Satan is coming for you. And there's going to be a sifting that comes. But I also want you to notice here Jesus' words of encouragement. Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you. And I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I don't know what that does to you. But man, when I think of Jesus looking God in the eyes and saying, Father, I'm asking you not to let Joe's faith fail. God, please don't let Joe's faith fail. You know, that, that tells me a couple of things. These are not going to come up on the screen. I'm going to spit these out. These came, came later in, in my message prep, um, actually early this morning. So um, here, here's a couple of things that this, this captures my heart about. First, it tells me that Christ knew everything in advance. He knew what Peter was about to face, and he knows what you're about to face. Jesus knows. He knows what you're in right now, and he knows what's yet to come for you. Jesus is very, very aware of it. Jesus' heart was broken over and he prayed for it. Jesus knew that he would fail. But Jesus also knew that one day he would be restored and would be the Pentecostal preacher. He would be the preacher on the day of Pentecost to really first time proclaim the gospel to a massive crowd and see thousands come to Christ. Jesus saw all the pride. Jesus saw all the reckless boasting. Jesus saw Peter not realizing that he needed the strength of God. But he also saw the heart of Peter. There's another part here that, I, that just kind of strikes me out of what Jesus said to me about his prayer. Is Christ's response to, uh, to Peter's fail is to pray for him. That knowing that in my failure, Jesus is praying. Hebrews, Hebrews 7.25 says something that's incredible to me. It says that Christ is praying. He's interceding in heaven for us. And that because of his prayers, you and I get saved to the uttermost. Do you feel saved to the uttermost? I love that word. Because Jesus is praying for my faith, I get saved to the other. You know, the Bible tells us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what, what this is telling me is that Jesus is praying and my salvation is being applied to my life. It, it, it is being worked out and I'm beginning to live in it in new ways. And I need to do that. I need to experience being saved to the, to the uttermost. And here's the cool thing. When Jesus is praying, interceding for you, he's not going, God, like, like we pray, and God bless all the missionaries. You know, he does, that's not how Jesus prays. Jesus doesn't just pray and bless River Bluff Church. He prays specifically. He prays for you by your name. He takes your name to God. He says, Bob... Dear Jesus, Bob needs help. You know, Cindy, dear, God, Jesus, you need to, Cindy needs you. He's praying that. He's praying for us by name. A third thing that Christ, we see here is Christ, and, and this one you're not going to like. 
Jesus does not pray for Peter to be removed from the temptation. I, I'm not real happy about that one. I'll just tell you. you know, I, would, I would rather Jesus just pray and God don't let him be tempted. But he doesn't do that. Instead what he prays is that in the midst of his shame, in the midst of the public humiliation, that he would not lose his faith altogether. Satan is setting out to destroy him. Now folks, for me what this does though is it explains a little bit of why sometimes we go through very difficult times. Why we sometimes go through those because many times God, it's God's only method of getting us to face the truth about ourselves. You know, one of the things, uh, again, I, I love about this passage about Peter, it's Jesus' prayer for him. He says, and when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. King James Version says when you've repented or when you've been converted. Now, what that tells me is, see, Peter, Peter was a follower of Jesus already when this happened. Peter, you know, he had, he had given up everything to follow Jesus. But Peter's heart still had not been completely converted. There was still some work that was going on. And then there's that little word, when. And that's a great word of grace. See, Jesus knew all about Peter's coming fall. But Jesus knew about the image of God that lived in Peter. And Jesus knows about the image of God living in you. He knows your heart. He knows the real you. See, the real you is not, the real Peter was not the Peter that denied Jesus. The real Peter was the one that followed him to the courtyard that night. That was really the heart of Peter. And the other thing that I love about Jesus' response to Peter is there's two things. One is he never criticized Peter. When you read about this, when you look at this, you never see Jesus criticizing Peter. Boy, that's a fatal mistake Christians make. We love to criticize each other. We, we love to come after each other's hearts. And folks, there's sin in that. There's destruction. Jesus didn't do that. Even when he knew what Peter was about to do. He never criticized Peter. And secondly, he never gave up on him. How quick are you to give up on a brother or sister who's fallen into sin? How quickly do we just kind of throw our hands up and say, done with them? See, Jesus said to Peter, when you turned back, when, when it happens, he knew there was going to be terrible sin, but he knew that he would return. Now, here's what I love about this, because this is what this teaches me. Jesus had more faith in Peter than Peter had in Jesus. Jesus had more faith than Peter. Jesus knew what was about to happen. But he had more faith that Peter would return. And here's the truth about you. Jesus has more faith in you than you have in him. He, he believes in you. He looks at your life and he sees the beautiful image of God that you were created to bear. He sees the true you. He sees the completely redeemed you. He sees the you that's been saved utterly to the uttermost. That's what Jesus sees. And so he does not give up. He has more faith in us than we have in ourselves. And that's why he was able to look at Peter and say, when you return, because you're going to, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. But here's, here's the deal on this. None of that, none of that ministry of Peter would have actually happened had he not walked through that fall. Had he not gone through that difficulty. Many of, how many of you have ever had a broken bone? Broken bones, okay. A lot of broken bones in this house. One of the things that I've been told about a broken bone is that the, pre, the place, the point at which the break mends often becomes the strongest point of that bone. It often becomes the strongest point. One of the things that's true about our failures in the hand of God, a God who delivers us, is that God can touch the broken places of our lives and make us stronger there than we were before. Even when we come through fall after fall after fall, and we come through bitter defeats, God's grace has this power to strengthen us. And that's what he did for Peter. I believe this with my whole heart that what God did was he took Peter's guilt and he transformed it into grace. He took the shame that Peter felt about 
you know, having denied Jesus the way he did. And he turned it into sympathy for other sinners. I believe that he took, you know, the, this, this failure, this great failure, and he turned it into incredible faith. That's, that's the way God delivers us. He doesn't just always keep us from being tempted. He doesn't always keep us from experiencing a fall. One of the beautiful things about Peter after this is you never again in Scripture see Peter bragging about being greater than the other disciples. You never see him arguing about who, who should be the greatest. Who should get to sit on the left or right hand of Jesus. All of that stuff just kind of melted away. And we need to come to see that. That that's what God wants to do in our lives. It can become grace. Our failures can become grace. I remember one time losing my temper in an environment that was seen by some people. And it took me about, I don't know, about three weeks before I, I shared what I had done with the, the accountability group. I was in the accountability group with, with two other men at, at this time. And I finally worked up the courage to, to tell them what I had done. And one of them looked at me and said, isn't God's grace great, Joe? And I had two thoughts. My first thought was, either this guy didn't hear me or he's lost his mind and I'm getting out of this group. You know, I'm trying to, how, how is this God's grace? And he said, because God pulled back the cover enough to show you your true heart. To show you what's still in there. Joe, you thought you were managing your anger. You thought you had it under control. And you were primed for a great fall. It was an act of God's grace. What, what God allowed Peter to go through ultimately became one of the greatest acts of grace in Peter's life. That's what God did for Peter. He poured out his grace in that moment. Now, if, if God knows about our failures before they happen, the question in my mind that comes up is, why didn't he just stop us? Why didn't he put up a sign? Why does he let us go over the cliff? I want to give you three reasons. These are going to come up on the screen. Three, three reasons why I think God allows us sometimes to go over the cliff. The first one is this. To show us the depth of our sin. Sometimes he allows us to go over the cliff because what we've been doing is standing on the top of the cliff judging everybody else at the bottom. And sometimes God's deliverance takes us over the cliff because it's there lying at the bottom, broken and battered, that we come face to face with the truth about ourselves and deliverance begins. And for some of us, that's the only way it happens. A second reason that I think God allows us to go over the edge of that cliff sometime is to pull out the pride that has grown in us. To pull it out. You know, the Bible tells us God hates pride. It is the opposite of who he is. Jesus is the most humble being that ever walked the face of the earth. Pride destroys. Pride kills. And God wants to pull that out of us. Again, you will never see Peter boastful in anybody but in Jesus after this. He never boasts in anybody else. I believe that that moment of denying Christ, that public humiliation, that, that public shame that set in, I believe it was a perpetual guardrail for Peter the rest of his days. It, it, it kept his heart in check. It crucified overwhelming pride. A third reason that I believe that God allows us sometimes to go over the cliff is to prepare us for greater kingdom work. To prepare us for greater kingdom work. Folks, I can't explain and in some ways that I can't fully understand. Peter had to fall so that God could pick it. You know that's the only way that you can get up is you have to be down. The only way that you can get picked up by God is to have been knocked down. Now, I believe with my whole heart that the, the falling, the failing was of Peter's own making. But the picking up, and that was Jesus. That was the power of God. You know, I've seen, I've seen folks in, in, in this church, in our congregation, who, who didn't want to go through divorce. They, they wanted to save their marriage, but divorce came. And God took 
what felt like failure. God took what felt like a destruction. And God raised them up and in his deliverance turned them to minister to others. I've seen some in this congregation, people who have battled with addictions, those kinds of behaviors. God has allowed them over the cliff to raise them up, to strengthen them for kingdom ministry impact that they wouldn't have had elsewhere, otherwise. And he's, he's turned them loose now for greater kingdom impact. See, God uses our worst moments for prep, to prepare us for something greater. Because God most often uses our brokenness. You know, if, if, you, if you ever doubt this, you know, if you ever doubt that God uses really broken people, just go back through that list I started with. You know, Noah, Moses, Abraham. And then jump over to the New Testament and look at, look at the Apostle Paul. And look at Pete. You know, God uses our brokenness over and over again. Now here's something that, that I, wanna, I want you to just think on for a moment. Did, did Peter do more for Jesus before his fall or after? After. Hands down. No question. The kingdom impact that Peter had after, you know, Peter became this powerhouse of God's grace. Before that, he had just been a windbag of boastful pride. But he became this powerhouse. And all he wanted to boast in was Jesus Christ. You know, that's, that's who he was. This, Peter was the same man. He, he was the same man through and through. But he had been sifted. And that sifting brought, you know, one of the things that happens when you sift wheat is there's this stuff called chaff that gets blown off. All of that blew off of Peter. That was the way it got blown off. And so Peter, Peter in his failing lost some things. Peter lost vanity. He lost pride. He lost self-deception. He, lo he lost confidence in himself alone. He lost all kinds of things. He, he lost impulsiveness. We see Peter gaining so many things in his restoration. He gained humility. He gained a tested courage. He gained confidence in God that he had lacked. He gained so many other things. He gained a willingness to experience and walk into hurt with other people. He lost the things that he needed to lose and he picked up the things that he needed to pick up. And that's what happens when we allow God to deliver us. That's what happens for us when we, when we will allow God to do that. See, we often look and see and, and we think, oh, that Peter, yeah, he denied Jesus. And yeah, he cursed in, you know, in the courtyard that night. Folks, that wasn't the real Peter. That wasn't the Peter that Jesus knew. And when you do dumb things and Jesus looks at you, he knows that's not the real you. He sees, he sees beyond that. He sees, you know, our pain. He sees our tears. He sees our faults. But you know what? He sees your heart underneath that. He sees our, our faltering kind of failing attempts to follow him. He sees, all, he sees the real you, the heart of you. And his love for us provides us the grace we need to overcome the evil one. And see, we've got to face the truth. All of us in this room are broken. In some way, every last one of us are broken. Some of us are just really better at hiding it. You know, some of us took master level classes on hiding our sin. Hiding our brokenness. And, but the truth is, there's a little bit of Peter in all of us. There's just a little bit of that in all of us. And that's why you and I need to hear these words from Jesus for Peter. Here are a couple of takeaways. Again, these aren't going to come up. You can write these down. But these are some takeaways from Jesus' words to Peter. The first one is this. I need to personally, and these, these were my own soaping, okay? These were my soaping thoughts that day when I soaked through the scripture not long ago. I need to value humility. I, I need to value humility more. See, if, if Christ's number one hand-picked leader can fall into temptation like Peter did, so can I. So I need to value humility much more. Second thing that I soaked and I, I learned is this, that I need greater patience with you. And you need greater patience with me and one another. 
We need to have patience. Have any of you been recently surprised by the behavior of a Christian brother or sister? Have any of you been shocked? You know, maybe disappointed? It, it happens. Perhaps we shouldn't be as surprised. Perhaps we need to lower our expectations of one another at least to what we expect of ourselves. You know? See, even on our best days, we're going to disappoint. We're going to sin. And I just, I'm, I'm going to go on record public now. I know that I've let many of you in here down. And if I haven't, you can go ahead and write it in your notes today. I will. It, it, it'll happen eventually. You know? Because I'm broken too. I, I'm, I'm broken. I'm flawed. Third kind of takeaway for me was this. I need, to, I need to really meditate on the magnificence of God's grace more than I do. I, I, need, I need to walk in it. You know, I, I, need to, I need to think about it. I need to rest in it. I need to share it more. I, I need to sing it more about the grace of God. I just need to, to think about it. Now, the truth is none of us completely understand it all. And I think that's one of the reasons because we can't really grasp the depth of, of grace. I think that's one of the reasons that Peter is oftentimes the favorite apostle of so many. I, I do know this. In, in my kind of goings and comings in, in the Christian community for years, I've noticed that Peter is the favorite apostle of people with the past. He's just one of the favorites, you know. For those of us who have spent a lot of time with our foot in our mouths, he's our apostle hands down, you know. Because Peter too had a past. And we're all capable of foolish, dumb things. But it tells us that we're redeemable. That God still has a plan for us. That grace is still possible for us. That God could still somebody use somebody that's broken like me. What an awesome thought that is. You, you may be, today, you may be heading for a fall and not know it yet. Here's God's word to you today. Take heart. The God who created you loves you. And in Christ, if you will allow God, if you will go to God and, and confess your weakness and his strength, he will deliver you. You may fall, but he will pick you back up again. And that's what it means to have the Lord deliver you from your bondage, from your captivity. Let's pray. Father, we come in this moment just confessing to you and maybe to one another that we're weak. When we look at temptation that comes our way, the way that we still yield to it at times, we come declaring, God, we are weak. And so we pray, do not lead us into temptation, but, oh, God, deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one. Maybe today you're here and you're, you're just on the edge of the cliff. And you're about to take a step that will cause you to fall greatly. Sometimes God calls you back and warns you by showing how someone else has fallen. To, let you, to warn you. And maybe what you need to hear God tell you today is step back. Maybe you've stepped off the edge. And maybe you're just kind of in the fall right now. You're, you feel like you're free falling and, and you just, you're waiting to hit the bottom. God can deliver you. Or maybe you're at the bottom and you're laying there today and you feel broken and beat up and battered. You need to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus saying to you, I have prayed for you. And when? 
So that you know that there's a coming day of your redemption. There's a coming day that you're going to be strengthened. A coming day of healing. A coming day of resurrection for your life. And you'll be set free again. Free to worship God. Free to follow Jesus. Free to be used by him in his kingdom. And so maybe right now, in these moments as we close, what you want to do today is before we leave, maybe you want to go to one of the crosses and just say, Jesus, I'm asking you to deliver me from this. I want to let this go and I want to pick up humility and I want to pick up your grace and I want to pick up trusting you more. I want to let these other things go. Maybe you need to find someone to pray with you. But all of us need to come today celebrating again that because of the death, burial, and resurrection, because of the gospel, the whole gospel, we no longer have to be enslaved. We can live free of our shackles. We don't have to be slaves to sin. Because we have a redeemer. We have one who has saved us to the uttermost. And maybe today he wants you to start living in the uttermost of your salvation. Father, we come now to give you thanks. To celebrate our freedom. We come to worship you. We come to give back to you from what you've blessed us with. So that your gospel can go forth. Your gospel of freedom. Your gospel of deliverance. And so we pray once again. Lead us not into temptation. But oh God. Oh God deliver us. So that we're no longer slaves. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday. Please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again for more information visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.